Um, I know we're going all the way, we're teaching through Luke, and then we took a break, but tonight we're going to go back into Luke. Um, so how many people have all your Christmas presents bought, purchased, or you're, you're done, you're good to go? How many people are just soaking up the Christmas season and like fully embracing it? And how many people are crazy stressed? Because you haven't. Um, so tonight we're, we're go doing, I know typically Advent is four weeks. Um, this year we just tried to shorten it up and do two weeks. <clears throat> and there's a bunch of different reasons why. Um, but tonight we're going to kind of wrap up our Advent season. Like Kyle mentioned uh, earlier, we won't, we, I don't know if you noticed, but this is a government facility. The government owns this. Uh, so there's no way they're going to come open it up on Christmas. Uh, no way about it. Um, and also the next week, we'll talk about this later, the next week is New Year's Day. Again, uh, this is government owned. They're not going to come open it up for New Year's Day. So we're going to have a big cookout and time of prayer as a church. Um, if you don't, if you never filled out a communication card or got an email from us, make sure you do, because that's how we're going to send all the info out and everything for that. So make sure you uh, fill one of those cards out, because we're just going to do a time of prayer community uh, on New Year's Day, and then we'll be back here on the 8th for a big night of prayer corporately, and then we'll start the year off. Um, but with Advent, and just sidebar too, because this just makes me feel a little self-conscious, so let me say it. I know that we're a smaller crowd tonight because all the college students are gone. I don't really need to wear this microphone. I don't want it to seem like I'm vain and like, oh, I need to wear a microphone because you have to listen to me. We record our sermons um, for a couple different reasons, podcasts, and then just so I can learn from myself. And so that's why I'm wearing this, so that it can go online. And the world needs to hear me because I'm that good. So that's why it goes to public so everyone can hear it, whatever. Um, so tonight, though, we're going to finish up our two weeks of Advent. Um, and a couple years ago, I fell upon this Advent conspiracy stuff and honestly fell in love with it. Because um, typically churches, the liturgical church, the church history will go through faith, hope, love, and peace through Advent leading up to Christmas. Because Advent just means coming, that we're celebrating that the Christ that Christ has come, but then also he's coming again, right? It's the already but not yet. Christ has come and he paid the penalty for our sins, uh, but he's also coming again. So we have hope, we have a future, we have joy in that, that knowing like things aren't how they're supposed to be. Um, that if you're, is anyone in here experiencing brokenness in any way? Okay, yes. That's not how God designed this to work. Um, so we're kind of living in this season, the already but not yet of Christ has come and he saved us from the penalty of death and sin, uh, but he's also coming once again to take us home with him. And so everything will be perfect. Everything will be joyous. There'll be constant worship, constant communion with Jesus, which is just crazy to think about. But while we're here, we're kind of stuck in this place and we're just trying to figure out what to do. So we get to celebrate that Christ has come. We've got the Christmas tree and traditions and all that stuff. But we also get to take this time just to pause and reflect and, and really dream about what's it going to look like when Christ comes back for us? Um, what's it going to look like when sin is no more, when there is no more death, when there's no more turmoil, when there's no more tension? Um, and I know probably all of us going into Christmas have some kind of great Christmas family drama that comes with it, because that just tends to follow. You hang out with your family too much, and you're going to fight. So what does it look like when, when there is no fighting? What does it look like when there is no more of that, when it's just us and Jesus? And so instead of the typical... Uh, four pillars. Advent Conspiracy came up with this idea of um, give more, spend less, love all, and worship fully with their four tenets. Um, and they're, one of their big fights they fight about is on average Christian or Americans spend $450 billion on Christmas. Um, billion with a B. That's $450 billion. It would take about 10 or $20 billion a year to give clean water to the world. 
So when you just kind of take those two thoughts, 400, $450 billion a year for Christmas that all these presents are going to end up in the trash or thrown away or yard sales or whatever, versus 10 to 20 billion a year for clean water for the world. And you start to put in that perspective that a child dies every minute because of water-related issues. Uh, what are we really doing here? What is this Christmas? So if we could just take the Bible and kind of conspire together, what would it look like to actually live out Christmas like Christ intended us to? Um, we just get to almost have fun with and dream with what Christmas season could really be. And so tonight we're going to tackle one of those. Um, about four or five years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and the guy who was speaking, I don't even remember who it was, made the point of, um, tell me the best 10 sermons you've ever heard in your life. Best 10 sermons. I'm like, oh, that'll be easy. So you can write down one, two, or three. But that, like, four, stretching it, five, you're just trying to think of what you heard on the radio this morning. Like, it was really hard, actually, to write 10 sermons that you really enjoyed. Um, and that was his point that, like, sermons are good, but, like, relationships are better. And it, he proved his point. Um, but one of the things I started writing about was my youth pastor, and, and uh, I guess I was in middle school, Chad. Chad Hayes, and he had this video clip of Elvis singing, and there was girl, teenage girls all the way up to like uh, older ladies, gray hairs that were losing their mind in the audience. I'm talking like unashamed, going crazy over Elvis, and you're watching, you're like, that's embarrassing. Like, you're going to watch that clip in a couple years and realize how silly you looked. And so his whole point was, um, that's what worship looks like. That's what unashamed, unadulterated worship that's what it really looks like. Um, any other cynics in here? Cynical people? Okay. I am extremely cynical. If you tell me anything, I'm not going to believe you. Uh, I think that's kind of how I ended up as a pastor because I couldn't disprove any of this. And so here I am. Um, so as he's talking about this, my mind's just racing. You can always tell when you're dealing with a cynic, by the way, uh, because you make a point and they stop listening. And so you're just talking to a cardboard face because in their mind, they're arguing with you back and forth. Like that's when you know you're dealing with a cynic. Um, and then as soon as they finish, they go, hey, you done? Okay, well, here, let me fix all this stuff that you said that was wrong. So I was kind of doing that to a sermon. Um, and, and at the end of my kind of wrestling with, I said, uh, and I think I talked to him about it after, said, no, like, Chad, that's not worship. That's a God. Like, that's not, we're not talking about worship here. We're talking about making gods out of other things. And the byproduct of that is worship. But what we're seeing here, they're not just worshiping for the sake of it. They're, they really think Elvis is a god. In their mind, they've created a god out of Elvis, and therefore worship always follows. And so when we get into this Advent season, especially around Christmas season, um, it's really easy to find out what we really think is God, what we really spend time with. And the easiest way to get to that is what are we actually worshiping? Where's our time? Where's our energy? Where's our money? Where's our emotions going to? So when we talk about tonight, we're going to kind of tackle the worship fully. But worship is always a byproduct to what we believe is God. Um, so John Piper, if you've ever read any John Piper, uh, he's super dense. And so I'm going to read this quote by Piper. If you don't get it, I understand. I'll try to read slowly. It took me like 16 times to actually figure out what he was saying. So let's try this. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly. Okay, so we'll just stop right there. The inner, inner, no, I don't even remember what it said. Inner essence of worship is to know God truly. Stop. So when we worship, when we talk about worship, when we talk about worshiping fully, the first thing we need to talk about is who God is. We have to understand the character and nature of God. Because what we, if we aren't careful about that, then we start slipping into legalism. Well, you need to worship better. What does that even mean? You need to worship better. 
No, you need to know God more deeply and then worship will naturally come. So the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in a demonstrable act of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love and serving others for the sake of Christ. So tonight when we talk about worship fully, uh, we're not actually going to talk about the act of worship. Because the act of worship is a byproduct of who God is. We need to understand the character and the nature and of Christ first, and then we can actually start talking about worship fully and, and what that looks like as that permeates across the world. Uh, but tonight we have to tackle the idea of who God is and how perfect of a time then we get to talk about the incarnation of Christ becoming man and walking on earth with us. So I know we're a small crowd. We're going to have fun with this. When we start, start talking about gods, like that we create, like these ladies were creating gods out of Elvis, uh, what are some things we create gods out of? That we put on a pedestal higher than we should. Money, okay. What else? Our children? That'll preach. Relationships? Okay, what else? Sports? Yeah. What, what do we put on a higher pedestal than we should? What do we worship? Where does our time? Maybe this will help. Some synonyms to worship are adoration, awe, honor, love, praise, respect, reverence, offering, and service. What does that look like for us? Where do we put, we're like little G gods. What, how have we created little G gods? Children, money, sports, relationships, success, right? What? Power and influence, ourselves, career, what else? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one, electronics. Did anybody at the sidebar do the fast last week from technology? Okay, we'll talk about that later. I did, and I mean, Brie can test, like it was so freeing for our family. Uh, like just, I don't know, maybe not, but it was for me. Just going in and plugging my phone as soon as I got home and didn't, I felt like I was a better father this, this week than normal. Anything else? The things we've made gods out of? So just remember those things as we start diving into scripture tonight. Just remember this, this idea that we do make gods out of many different things. Uh, one I didn't hear was comfort. I think in America, like, comfort is a huge thing for us, that we believe comfortness should lead to happiness, and that's like everything is about my comfort. Uh, I mean, we can just, yeah, just recap some of the politicalness that just happened, and you'll see what kind of gods this country has created. Um, so let me pray for us, and then I think it'd be super appropriate just to read the Christmas story tonight. Is that cool? Uh, I, I don't care if you think it's cool. We're going to read the Christmas story um, and then draw some conclusions out of it. So let me pray. Uh, Father, tonight would you reveal to us in our hearts and in our spirit uh, where we are putting other things above you. Um, God, when we, when we talk about worshiping fully and we talk about um, this Advent living our life differently, uh, Father, we can talk about the symptoms all night but Father, we want to get to the heart of the issue. Do we know you? Do we love you? And do we trust you? And so Jesus, I'm just asking uh, for your spirit to really speak to us tonight. 
of God. This is not necessarily a corporate message, Father, but this is very individualistic. And so I'm, I'm pleading for your help tonight that you would uh, speak to hearts on an individual basis about their different idols, about their different gods. Um, and God, would you give us the wisdom and the energy and the strength to fight off those little gods and get everything out of our way that's taking any attention from you. So Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, since we are so small, does someone want to read? I mean, we can have fun with this. Luke 2, starting off in verse 1, 1 through 21. Do we have any good orators that want to read? Do what? Get him in. Uh, through 21. Or you can popcorn if you want to. Thanks, man. So it's awesome to see, and you can read the different accounts of uh, Matthew and Luke of, of the birth taking place, but now, biblically all over the Bible, worship is everywhere. Um, but on this certain account, it's, it's, it's just awesome to watch the, how the details it was included for how they worshiped Jesus from the beginning. I mean, you had the angels showing up, um, busting up the skies and pra singing his praises. You had the shepherds, you had the wise men. Um, if you go back to Luke chapter one, you have Anna or Anna and Simeon. Uh, you have, I mean, that, Luke chapter 2. So you have all these different effects of worship and all these different uh, ways and styles, if you will, of worship. Uh, but tonight, I want to look at Mary and how she uh, started this idea of worship and where it really birthed forth for her. Um, so if you would flip back to Luke chapter 1, and 40, verse 46. Now, just to set the scene, this was, she was pregnant with Jesus. Um, and so there's just a lot going on there. You've got someone that's not married, uh, that has had a dream. Angels spoke to her, hey, you're going to have Jesus, get ready. Um, all the social implications that went with that. I mean, you've got a girl that is not married. The punish from it for this could be death if they wanted to. Um, she's engaged to the lineage of David, right? So 
um, just the family power that comes with this. And you have a teenager. Uh, like we talked about before, this is not teen mom, the cool, fun thing to do. I mean, this is a nightmare for Mary. <clears throat> Y'all come in. You're good. You don't have to try to sneak in. So this is just, this is bad news. And so uh, this specific passage we're going to read, uh, Mary had gone to see Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. So there's a bunch of prophecy and a bunch of stuff in that as well that's pretty cool to read about. Um, so Mary had gone to see Elizabeth. They were cousins. They were talking about giving birth and just dreaming about the implications of John the Baptist and Jesus being born together, what this is going to mean for the world. And so when this takes place, Mary goes over to Elizabeth's town, um, goes into her house, and at the moment that Mary walks in, John the Baptist leaps in her belly. Um, so just, man, the significance of this. And so Mary, just in her thoughts, sits down and writes a praise, um, a song of praise. And so this is where we're going to pick up verse 46. We're only going to get through verse 48. So just a couple verses. I think we'll set the scene. Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If you have anything to underline, underline this. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 48 is just what sets the scene for us tonight. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I love the almost political correctness of her words. The humble estate of her servant. Basically, this means my life is jacked up and he's doing something with it, right? The humble estate. I'm a teen mom. I'm pregnant. Um, I could get death for this. I'm trying to do all this out of obedience for you. I don't know what's going to happen with this. Um, you say it's Jesus. I'm not sure if that's true. My humble estate, my current situation is not very good right now. My humble estate. But everything changed how verse 48 starts off. But he looked on me. He looked at me. He looked at me. So what we want to start to understand of the nature and character of God that should stir up worship from our souls is this idea of the incarnation that he looked upon us and he did something about it. That's where the idea of worship would come from. That we as human beings can be fully known, fully seen, and at the same time fully loved. That is the beauty of Christmas. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of incarnation is that we can be fully known, fully seen, and fully loved. And so that's why we worship. Um, when I was, a, I think I was an intern, um, Bree and I were at First Baptist Alpharetta, and I'll never forget, it was just kind of a, a big deal for me, I don't know why. But we were sitting there talking to another couple, and she probably had to be second, third grade. A little girl named Lexi came running up, and I'm talking, so I don't want to be rude and address this girl. And, uh, so we're just talking along, and she's just standing there. I mean, have you, like, how little kids just didn't stare. Y'all ever seen that? It's kind of creepy. Um, that's all she was doing, just sitting there staring at us. Uh, I'm talking, having this full conversation, knowing full well she's just right there. And so finally, Bree just kind of nudged me like, well, you just acknowledge that Lexi's standing there. So I looked down and said, hey, Lexi, how are you? Interrupted this conversation. Uh, Lexi smiled and ran off. It's like, that's the weirdest kid I've ever seen. So we get in the car and I said, Bree, like, help me understand. Well, probably what happened was she said, Gabe, you were such a jerk for that. And I said, tell me why. Um, help me understand like what what happened there because that was just seemed like a really awkward interaction and she said that she just wanted to be seen she wanted to know that you knew she was there that was it there's no special miracle there's no nothing 
as human beings, we just want to know that we're seen and we're noticed. And this is huge for us. I mean, you can't just say, that's like, look at our celebrity culture. Um, everyone just wants to look up to and notice celebrities. The celebrities did this. And, like, if you really pay attention to the tabloids, it's ridiculous. Oh, this celebrity, Matthew McConaughey, went to go get coffee. Cool. Like, he was thirsty and he got coffee, right? Like, what's the big deal with that? Well, this celebrity breathed air. Oh, so am I, you know? But, like, our culture just naturally locks onto and wants to keep up with, wants celebrities to be seen. They want to be noticed. Uh, or what about this one? How, just true confession. How many people have ever taken a selfie? Let me see it. Let, let me flip it around. If you've never taken a selfie, I want to see your hand. If you've never taken a selfie in your life. <laughs> Challenge accepted. I'm going to prove all of you wrong. I'm looking. I mean, let me borrow your phone. There's actually a selfie on your phone. <laughs> I will after, yeah. I will. So, I mean, just... Think about that for a second. We all want to be seen to the sake that we take literally pictures, like it's called a selfie. All that's in the picture is you. One of the biggest booming markets in the past couple years have been a selfie stick so that you can actually take selfies from a distance and it doesn't look like you're like half your arm sticking in it. Um, that's what we do. That's the culture that we celebrate. We want to be noticed. We want to know that someone sees us. Even, even if they don't see us, we will take selfies to make sure that uh, we are seen. And we post that on Instagram all over the place. Uh, I'm, I'm not there yet. I take selfies like for myself, like with my family. I don't know how many selfies I've posted a whole, well, I can't say that. I posted a selfie on Friday. So hypocrite is me. So that's what we do. That's, but on the other side of that, I mean, think about it, maybe work, maybe school, maybe it's a sports team. But how does it feel when you don't get noticed? When you just feel like you're a cog on the machine, that you're just making this thing go, maybe it's your family dynamics, that everyone else gets praises around you, but you don't, that you feel replaceable, that you feel like just you don't really matter that much. We all want to be seen, and we all want to be noticed. And I don't think this is a desire that is wrong in us. I think it's a desire that God has given us. We want to live a life that we feel like matters. I mean, one of my biggest quotes that I carry with me always is from a Donald Miller quote that said, if your life was a movie, would anyone come to see it? Would anyone come to pay and see a movie about your life? Is your life that interesting? No, prob probably not. But we want it to be. We want our life to, we want people to notice all the accomplishments that we do. So what do we do in with the fact that the God of the universe notices us? When on an average day, we can walk around and feel unnoticeable. We might even have these thoughts like, does anyone see me? If I were to do this, would anyone even notice? True story, and this might get me in trouble. Um, for church planting, I have to do a report. So once a month, so we get funding from the Georgia Baptist Convention. Once a month, I have to do a report to show how we're doing, where we're struggling, all this kind of stuff. So I put some comments on there, like I thought someone would follow up and say, oh yeah, I noticed this, like you guys doing okay. It's a one month I just was frustrated. I've kind of got a temper and so just kind of let it have the better of me and wrote on there like, hey, I'm really not doing okay, but no one ever reads this, so you won't know that. Just, just to see, just because I was spiteful and cynical and just to see. Uh, well, they did see it, but about three months later. <laughs> so I got a phone call, maybe it was two months, I'll be, I'll be there. I got a phone call two months later and said, hey man, we saw your report. Is everything okay? Like, that is now. Like, that's two months later. 
What if, like, what if that was a serious threat? Like, what if I was really on the verge of quitting? What if I was really on the verge of throwing my marriage away? I didn't feel noticed. I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel loved. And so just naturally, we kind of take that into everything. There might be a few people that love us and notice us well, but in general, we take that affections to God. That God's got a universe to manage. That God created everything. He doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't have to notice me. He doesn't have to love me. He doesn't have to encourage me. But we see straight from Scripture, Mary's song of praise is that he saw me. He looked on me. He looked on me in the current condition that I'm in. He noticed me exactly, not some future version of me where I've got everything cleaned up and I'm like perfect, I don't cuss anymore, and I don't ever watch rated R movies because I'm a good Christian now. Like, no, he looked at me in my humble state, exactly where I am, and still loved me and still chose to use me. So what does it look like to be fully known, but at the same time fully loved? Because a lot of us probably don't want to be fully known, if we're just being honest. Like, we like some protection. We like offense. We like, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty extroverted, and I will confess a lot of things to you, but one of the things I've been figuring out about myself over the past couple of years is even I have a wall. Even I have a place where I'm more open than most. I will tell you things that will make you blush, and I will laugh about it. It's just my nature. Bree can attest to this. Family functions, we get around a table. If I'm in a good mood, things are going to get awkward, and I just like that. But even me, like, I have a wall that I want you to know me up to this level, but I don't really want you to know me. Because if you really know me, you're not going to love me anymore. So we take the same attention, the same affection up to God. We say, I I want you to know me, and I know that you know me, but I I don't really want to fully open myself up because if I really do, I'm not going to be loved. Um, Our culture almost is a normative thing for our relationships to be an if-then relationship, right? Uh, and we can look at a bunch of different examples. Products. If a product fulfills me, then I will purchase it. Makes sense, right? I mean, I'm not just going to go to Walmart and buy anything because it's on the shelf. Like, buy me. Okay. Like, no. Like, if I need this product, then I will purchase it. Or even like friendships. If this friend encourages me in the right way, then we'll continue to be friends. But if this friend keeps putting me down or always blows me off or says that he's busy when I know he's watching Netflix, like, then we're not going to be friends anymore. Right? I mean, that's just kind of normative for us. Uh, if school, if you get good grades, then you will get a, a, a good job when you graduate. When we keep going down the line, what we understand, retirement, 401ks, if you put money in, then you will get money when you retire. That's how we understand. That's how we operate. And you can see with the divorce rate, that's how people carry into marriage. When you get married, I mean, I'm, like I've mentioned before, between August and next August, I'm either in, going to, or performing 10 weddings. So when I stand up to do a wedding, we are very clear, this is a covenant you're making between yourselves, your family and friends, and God. This is not a contract. This is a covenant, and those two things are drastically different. But with the divorce rate being what it is, it's because people are walking into marriage as a contract, not as a covenant. Here's what I mean by that. Um, When we say, I don't do the traditional vows, but if people choose the traditional vows, uh, for richer or for poorer. So I'm going to love you as long as you can buy me the stuff that I want. If you go broke, then I'm out of here. You ever heard the phrase gold digger? That's, That's what that is. If you stay loaded, if you keep the job that you have right now, then I will keep coming back. We will stay married. 
No, that's a contract. If you break the contract, then I naturally have a way out. But what a covenant it says, for Richard, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter what happens. I am here for the long run. That is a covenant. I promise you, till death do us part. I'm not going anywhere. That is covenantal language. That's not contractual language. Or about uh, for sickness or in health, right? It doesn't matter if you're laying on your deathbed for 16 years and I have to take care of you and I have to bathe you or you're perfect health, you're running sprint triathlons, you're doing all this kind of stuff, you have a physique like Gabe Dodd. It doesn't matter if you're that crazy healthy, we're good, like I'm with you, right? I will stay with you as long as you keep that six pack abs, right? That's why Bree married me, we broke up, sorry. No, like that's, but all of us walk into some form of relationship like that because that's how we understand the world to work. Everything's contractual, I can get out whenever I want to. So by nature, we just have to understand, we do not understand covenantal language. We do not understand that God the Father says, I love you and in your humble estates, and nothing is gonna change that. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, it doesn't matter. And I know this is gonna be hard for us to understand, so um, I just picked, it was hard to pick a couple passages that helps prove this point, because it's like, read your Bible, it's literally everywhere. Uh, but here's a couple. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans 5a. Romans 5.8. This is the one that I really want you to see. I'm going to read five. They're all kind of all over the place, but I really want to start and underline this one. And we'll go from there. Romans 5.8. To help us understand the fact that he sees us exactly how we are, and he still loves us. Oh, man, babies aren't allowed in here. Can you get that out of here? I'm going to get in trouble for that one. <laughs> Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we talk about worship, we have to understand the character and nature of God. And we talk about God, we have to understand that even in our brokenness, in our humble estate, not on your best day, but on your worst day is what the Bible says. Just because of who you are in your sin, in your uniqueness, in your situation, in your depravity, in that current state, Christ died for you. That is the covenant that he's made with us, that you will be my people and I will be your God no matter what. No matter what sin comes between us, no matter what sin you struggle with, you don't have to clean yourself up. I mean, that's one of the myths of the church. I will get, when I get, when I get my life in order, I will come to the church. What am I doing here? I'm not, my life's not in order. I mean, there's so many cheesy little things that go along with that, but that's the myth that goes along with the church. You've got to clean yourself up before you can get involved with Christ. But Romans 5, 8 totally contradicts that. But this is how he shows his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here, here, I can maybe understand that one. The, I mean, I can, but theologically it makes sense. But this one just is out of right field. Zephaniah 3.17. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Now, just for me, when, I, when Bree and I got married, 
uh, one of the big things I said was like, do not use the D word. No matter what you do, do not, oh, you don't want me to use divorce? You don't, no, no, that's fine. You can joke about that all you want. I know you're not serious. What I don't want you to use is the word disappointed. For something, anybody else, like that word just cuts me to the core. If I feel like I'm disappointed somebody. Uh, like even today, we had a little um, communication breakdown where people got here at 3.30 and they should have got here at 4. And I probably apologized like 16 times because I felt like I disappointed our team. So I just cannot stand the feeling of being disappointed. So I can understand that God loves me and forgives me and tolerates me. What I cannot fathom my mind is that what Zephaniah says, that he will dance over me, he will sing over me, and he will quiet me by his love. What kind of God is this that loves us to the core that he literally sings and dances over us? I don't have a framework for that. So we have a God that loves us so much that he has seen us, yes, in our depravity, in our sin, he's seen us, but it doesn't stop there, that he loves us to the point of singing and dancing and quieting us down by his love. What is that? What do we do when we really understand that? What happens in us is called worship because we see who God really is and how much he truly loves us. Another one, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So even when we were dead in our sin, even when we can never ever fix ourselves, there's nothing we can do, there's no way we can save ourselves, even in that current state, by his grace, he has saved us. By his love, he has saved us. Maybe another one. Like I said, this was really hard to narrow down to five. Romans 8, 37 through 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is extensive in his list that, to show us and to prove to us that nothing, that nothing can separate his love for us. It's not us being fully known. It's not us admitting who we really are, right? It's not that that's going to turn him away from us. His love is not circumstantial based on what we do or how we act or how we live. That should stir some affection right there. I mean, we use this analogy all the time. If I could hook up a projector to your mind and put all your thoughts on the screen behind us, who would want to stay in the room for that? We can look pretty for a while, and we could fake it for a season, but if we get all of our thoughts, all that we've ever thought and ever will think, on this screen right here and bring all your family and friends around, and let's get some popcorn and have fun watching your thoughts, no, right? You wouldn't even want to go back to the car ride here, maybe. Anyone want to sign up for that? Any entrepreneurs? You guys should invent that. It'd be awesome. You guys would be the new Mori. How about this one? This is one that probably everyone knows, but just gets so lost. John 3.16. We don't have to read the whole, whole verse. For God so loved the world. Love requires action. I can't tell my wife I love her and do nothing that she asks or show love for her in any way. So if I just read on a page 
that God loves me, but we don't have Advent and Christmas season to celebrate, then how can you really prove that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? And if you've been in church for more than a day, you know this verse. And we quote about it, and we see signs about it, and we forget all around it. But what a lot of us kind of tend to forget is John 3.17, that he didn't come to condemn the world, which is what we feel like. He didn't come to condemn, but he came to save. So we just can't, we just have to admit, when we really start getting down to the depth of our hearts, we cannot fathom the fact that God would know every bit about us and still love us. But once we start to get there, once it starts to click in our minds, that's where worship starts to come from. Because we're fully known and we're fully loved, even in your current state. Takes, takes the load off, right? It means, it means effort for us looks different. It means that we don't have to try anymore to make God love us more. Because it's not possible. I mean, wh- what do you do with this level of freedom? That you're fully known and you're fully loved and you didn't have to earn that and you don't have to do anything to keep that. Oh, no, 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 Pastor. You can't give that, you can't give that much freedom away. You can't. Oh, yes, you can. Because once you fully know who Christ is, once you taste how sweet he is, you lose flavor for everything else. You lose flavor for the world. I mean, Paul preaches this message so hard that he has to stop and say, now hold on, do we keep sinning so that grace may abound? No, but let me keep telling you about grace. So it's just a blurb in Paul's radar that we should preach the gospel that we're fully known and fully loved so much so that people say, so does that mean I can keep doing what I was doing before? Does that mean I can keep sinning and not worry about it? That just shows us, man, like you haven't quite got it yet. Let me tell you more about grace. Let me tell you more about the gospel. But you can go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. When Adam and Eve, when sin first came into their world, what did they do? They went and got fig leaves, tried to cover themselves up. And in one of the most heartbreaking scriptures of the entire Bible, God says, who told you you were naked? How did you know this? Because he knew, and of course he always knew, but he knew in that moment everything had changed. And for thousands and thousands and thousands until Christ comes back, the rest of our life, his children are going to be trying to hide their brokenness from him. That we're going to try to look like we have everything put together, not realizing that that's cursing us more than if we just be honest about who we are. So when we start to talk about worship, what does it mean to worship? Do you understand that you're fully known, that everything, every good, every bad, everything about you, God already knows, and that you're fully loved even in your situation, even in your sin, even in your depravity? And if we start to understand that, then worship will just become natural for us because we have a God that we didn't know existed. We have a love for us that we didn't know was around. Um, Tim Keller about this subject says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. And to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well, a lot like being loved by God. 
It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So as we close tonight, uh, we just, I, I just want to ponder this. Like I opened in the beginning with my prayer, um, this is one of those deals, and this is uh, the nightmare of pastoral ministry, if you will, is I don't know who you are. I don't. I, I, I've spent time with a lot of you. I've spent a lot of time with some of you. I don't know who you are. I don't know the thoughts in your mind, and I don't know uh, really anything about you. Everybody can fake it for themselves for a season, for a longer season. They can keep people at arm's distance, and they keep people away. My fear is that we've taken that into our relationship with the Father, that we have faken it, we've kept him at arm's distance. We, we think we can fake it. We can't, but we think we can. And so tonight, what would it look like to let God fully see you for the first time? I mean, what would it look like for you to actually take the fig leaves off and confess, here's where I really am, here's where I'm really struggling, here's where I'm really broken? For some of us, that's a terrifying thought. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't know what my fig leaves are, like I think I'm okay, that's an equally terrifying thought. So at the first thought, we just have to ponder and question is like, what sin is festered into our hearts that we need to either confess for the first time that we're terrified to confess, or if we think we're doing okay, we need to ask God to really reveal to us where we're struggling. Maybe your idol, maybe your God is yourself. And once we've gone through that step, once we've been fully known, can we actually grasp the fact that he fully loves us in that mess? Can we, are we actually okay with saying, I don't have to work for this and I don't have to earn this? God, would you reveal to me how I'm trying to earn it, how I'm trying to fake it, how I'm trying to pretend it? Because what I don't want for us this Advent Christmas season is to go through one more year not being able to worship fully. And that doesn't come down to you fixing anything. It comes down to us rightly understanding who God is and what he's done. So the two questions, fully known, fully loved. What sins do you need to confess? Or maybe the other side, you need to ask God to reveal your sin to you. And do you understand that you're fully loved in that state? And we do this every Sunday, but man, like it just fits so well for us tonight. As we're wrestling through these thoughts, as we're thinking through, as we're pondering, am I fully known and am I fully loved? We get to take communion. We get to take, we get to rip off the bread, which is his body. We get to dip it into the juice, which is his blood. We get to stop and see tangibly a, a way for us to understand how much he loves us. That even in our fully known, I love this quote from Matt Chandler who stole it from somebody else, um, but how many of your sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. How many of your sins were future sins when Christ went to the cross? Was anyone alive when Christ went to the cross? Okay, all of them. So he just didn't die for the ones that were these, or he didn't die for the small ones. So he literally died for all of them. So when we go to the communion tonight, we get to really tangibly, physically touch the body, dip it into the juice. We get to understand what it means that Christ loves us because look what he did for us. 
And next Sunday, in a week, we get to open up presents and we get to celebrate Christmas morning. But what we're celebrating is the tangible love of the Father literally sending Christ here for us. It's going to end like that. It's going to end in the body being broken for us and his blood spilled out for us. That's what we celebrate for Christmas. When we wrestle with this truth, when we read this, when we celebrate, when we talk about it, when we get excited, this is what worship is. This is where worship comes from. That we are fully known and fully loved exactly where we are. So let me pray for us. And then like, like most Sundays, man, you can have time to reflect. I really encourage you, if, if not here, somewhere wrestle with those questions. Do you feel fully known by God your Father? Because no one in our life fully knows us. We're not comfortable with this idea. We just have to admit it. Are we okay with being fully known? And can we really believe Romans 5, 8? Can we really believe the Bible that even in that condition, we're still fully loved? That we celebrate communion, that he loves us so much that he died for us. That we celebrate Christmas, that he loved us so much that he came for us. That we celebrate the second coming, that he loves us so much that he's coming back for us. Do we believe that? And then from there, worship will naturally, I don't have to teach you how to worship after that. When you understand that you're fully known and you're fully loved, Worship is the only natural response. So let's take some time to pray over, to think through. Communion is open. Uh, we say this often, that it's for the believers. If you're still wrestling with this gospel stuff, uh, man, please don't participate because uh, you don't really know what you're participating in. Um, and so just kind of let that be for the believers. But man, if you're a believer, let's celebrate and let's ponder and let's think through his love for us through communion and through singing some songs of worship. So let me pray for us.